0: Well, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and thank you for joining us. It's peak off Friday. It's time to get back to keeping it real. I'm Robert Nacer. Amy Nacer joins me, and we are, of course, joined by the expert, James Valiant. James, how are you doing this afternoon?
1: I'm doing extremely well, in fact. You know, like we said last time, I've had a rough month in a variety of ways, but I'm bouncing back. My love of life and my benevolent universe have returned to me uh, because they're rooted in philosophy. They can never really leave me. And, um, you know, as Howard Rourke describes in The Fountainhead, the pain can only go down so far. And at some point, I remember my love of life and that we never had to take any of the rest of it seriously. I loved your last podcast. Thank you. much wisdom, Really, really. Thank you. And the one before that had me in tears. So I want to thank you guys. You are two of the most wonderful people I know.
0: Very much appreciated. Thank you, James. And as you say, these are challenging times. If you know our personal circle within objectivism, but also nationally and politically. So what better time to be discussing Leonard Peikoff's collection, keeping it real, bringing ideas down to earth. Now, folks who've been following along know we discussed love and sex. We discussed Ayn Rand's novels. Then we launched into the section on religion, and we talked about Ayn Rand's relationship to religion. We talked about religion in our personal lives, and that's led us into this series. How does one lead an atheist life in a mystical society? And that brings us to part three today. Now, you have hand-selected four questions about religion and government, and you think, four questions? Haven't we been doing six or ten? But these questions, the, the answers are substantial. They're just Pure Peikoff, outstanding. So I am eager to launch right into question number one here. Larry Peikoff was asked, do religionists have a right to influence the government? Now, that one seemed pretty straightforward to me, but of course, as always, Dr. Peikoff takes it to places I might not have thought of hearing that question. He answers, well, I want to know, influence how and by what means? if we're talking about whether they have the right intellectually to propagandize, to persuade, to proselytize for their views, to try and get groups who will agree with them. Well, well then yes, any group, leaving aside a wartime context, that's an interesting one there, but we'll, we'll get into that. Any group has the right in a free country to intellectually try to influence anybody. Again, as long as we're not talking about a war context. In other words, freedom of speech is an An absolute.
2: absolute.
0: And then he goes on, well, what do you mean by influence? Do you mean religion has a right to get special favors or special legislation, special recognition from the government for their religion? Then of course, no, they don't have the right to influence the government in that regard. But this is not anything distinctive to religion, though. It applies to all groups, whether ideological or otherwise, economic, ethnic, you name it. Nobody has the right in a proper society, to try to influence the government to give you favors. Now, that's that's half of Dr. Picoff's answer there. Anything, anything controversial about that one? It seems pretty straightforward.
1: Well, you know, I would take his position and uh, endorse it fully and go a step further than that. Okay. Um, the, uh, when he says free speech is an absolute, that is certainly true. Anyone can say anything philosophical, religious, you name it. Free speech means you can lie in many cases. <laughs> it certainly means you can offend. It certainly means you can advocate for any position you want. On the other hand, is a position that I've made, and this goes to the special favors part of what Dr. Peakoff was saying, a point that I made in a recent podcast that we did on abortion, for example. I do not believe that the First Amendment to the United States Constitution permits legislation which requires a sectarian religious justification. If, for example, say there's a Christian sect known as the Seven Day Adventists, they uh, celebrate Sabbath uh, like Jews do on the seventh day, (laughs) like God commanded in Genesis on Saturday, whereas most Christians on Sunday. So if someone were to say, well, no, 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 we have to do it on Saturday because it was in Genesis, say a Jewish group and a seven day Adventist group got together and said, aha, we have to keep Sabbath properly. That You could only have a sectarian justification for that. And on that basis alone, it violates the establishment of religion clause. Uh, our founders wanted a purely secular government. They wanted everyone to have the free exercise of their religious beliefs, philosophical beliefs. You can act on your own judgment as you see fit until and unless you violate someone else's rights. That's how they saw it. They also had another aspect. The government cannot endorse any particular sectarian religion. No establishment of religion. And this will be important in our later questions as well. So it seems to me that if if the only justification this religionist has for his legislation in America, he's running afoul of the Constitution if he says only a religious sectarian justification for his law. Uh, for example, uh, could... Uh, Muslims and Jews make circumcision legally mandatory or not eating pork legally mandatory? Uh, No, because it is a purely religious justification in both cases. Uh, If they could muster some kind of scientific justification, at least they could get past that part of the First Amendment in my mind. But the special favors part Peakoff is talking about here, I think, should include that. But it also includes, of course, all the special favors that religion gets just for being religious, tax-exempt status, and so forth. And it like that, they're just like any other lobby group, no particular lobby group. In fact, this whole pernicious pressure group warfare thing, this gang warfare thing, is the product of government violating rights and extending its power beyond what is morally appropriate. That's all I'd add to that.
0: Good, and, and Dr. Pigoff covers that in the second half of his answer, which begins, today so many people have been turned into dependents. So much private capital has been drained. So many private jobs and potential competition have been killed. And government is so powerful that there's really no alternative for a lot of people, at least in many situations, in defense against all the other groups who are grabbing off the wealth of the country They may have to do it themselves. That was, after all, the origin of the power of labor unions. Big business was gaining favors, tariffs and so on, and labor had to organize to defend itself. So he goes on that, well, given the current state of corruption, sometimes you have to act in self-defense in that regard. But I especially appreciate it really came down to free speech. And when we talk about free speech, it doesn't just mean you can say whatever you want. Because that that's almost the, the effect, but the, the cause, the root, is that you can think for yourself. That it. you leave minds free and you leave people free to act on their judgment.
1: When you read And it, in that
0: question, regard, how can you say, well, let's yeah. stop this religion over here because that's getting too powerful. Well, you're now saying, okay, we're going to decide what's appropriate to think.
1: That's it. When you put the First Amendment's pieces together, that's all it can really mean. If we have the freedom to practice our religious or philosophical beliefs, if we have freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of peaceful assembly, and it's no established sectarian religion in America, then what's clear what the framers meant when you take the whole First Amendment together, it's the ability to think and act on your own thinking that what they want is freedom of the mind you have the freedom to exercise your philosophy and your religion. You have the freedom to say whatever your opinion is. You have the freedom to print it in the press. You have the freedom to peacefully demonstrate for it. It's the freedom of the mind and the freedom to act on the best judgment of your mind that they were trying to protect.
2: Yeah, and I think at that time, um, so back in the the days of the founders, you know, there were a lot, most people were Christian in the United States or before the United States. Um, but they understood that there were different sects. There were different, uh, way, they, were, they were the evangelicals, you know, the ones that, you know, pe- people had to pay taxes to the king's church. Um, and so so people had understanding that people had differing views and, and takes on Christianity, so much so that they also remember the Spanish Inquisition. And they also remember, you know, the history of all of these religious wars and so many people dying, and of course the Revolutionary War and the kinds of ma- the, you know, all the the massacres, the Boston Massacre, and and everything that was going on during those times. Um, and I think that that's why they were so, you know, even though most people were Christian, and so were the founders to some extent, um, that they they were not willing to say let's make George Washington the king or a, have some sort of religious divine right of, of office and they were not interested in fighting about religion so I think the separation of church and state went down pretty well I, I think it, my theory is is that they understood that there was so much bloody conflict that they wanted to avoid that at the time they didn't well, want to fight that. about it
1: That's it. For 1,500 years before the late 1700s, Christians had not just been attacking Muslims, not just been engaged in gang violence against the local Jewish population. Of course, we know about that. But within Christianity, if you were a slight variant, you were a heretic. And that meant, of course, you got tortured and burnt at the (sighs) stake, just like an atheist or a Muslim or a Jew might have been by by the Spanish Inquisition. Christianity was particularly intolerant about any sectarian differences. Uh, Give you one recent example uh, that before the American Revolution in the 1600s, the famous 30 years war in Germany was basically fought between the states that had gone Protestant and the states that had gone Catholic. It was one of the most ruthless, sadistic, bloody wars if Thirty years, yeah. Well, yeah. Gener- that was a that was a generous time estimate. But they invented new torture devices, new weapons, just so they could be particularly harsh and ruthless to a slight variant Christian sect. That left a deep impression in the founders' minds and they didn't they wanted to leave all that violence behind. But they couldn't have if it hadn't been for the Enlightenment, if it hadn't been for this new relief in reason and this new respect for the individual, that is what really created this condition where they could look back. I mean the priesthood as a class, not just the sectarian wars, were viewed with skepticism by people like Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Bain, uh Benjamin Franklin. A lot of the top founding fathers were not Christians at all, but deists who thought that God did not intervene in the world. He was just sort of this, uh, like an immovable mover of Aristotle's that didn't engage in miracles and, you know, answer prayers. He was just this impersonal force. Uh, They were deists, but uh, many of the most important ones, people like Franklin and Jefferson, who were the principal ideological forces behind the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. You're absolutely correct, but it needed philosophy to help explain that history, and the Enlightenment gave that philosophical explanation.
2: Right,
0: right. Yes, good point. It's interesting, too, yeah, I wouldn't regard Thomas Jefferson as a Christian, even though he admired the ideals of Christ as as he thought they were documented. He edited his Bible, and you know he was the man who said, "I have sworn upon the altar of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the minds of men." So, getting back to Leonard Peikoff's answer, I absolutely agree. The last thing you want to do is say, "Well, these ideas, this religion, these things that our religion must not be allowed to." what talk to our politicians no 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 freedom of speech applies you can't apply it selectively
2: so 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 i have a question real quick is that uh um at this point you know he's talking about do people have a right to influence politicians to the point where they convert them and they basically do their bidding and their constituents tolerate it
0: well um and,
2: and and then he goes on to say Uh, well it gets to the point where if there's no separation of church and state anymore and the constitution is ineffective and that's when you you know possibly go into a revolution
0: Um, but well if i could let me read the last the last part of his answer this last paragraph he says
1: a great part of it yeah
0: he says i would sum it up this way do religionists have the right to work to influence people intellectually yes but to succeed to the point of making the Constitution ineffective and wrecking the country or being close to that, yeah. no. And if that happens, there should be a revolution if that's possible. Right. Now, that's interesting. It almost sounds like a contradiction, but in a way, there's no other way it could be that you have got to leave people free, even to the point where they may tear down the government and make us unfree.
1: It does sound a bit paradoxical, but you can't force freedom. That would be the contradiction. And uh, if people in their own minds reject freedom, there's nothing you can do. The the battle is in the human mind. It really is. And that's the the real battlefield here. Um, But he makes the outstanding point that, of course, religious ideas can potentially, we haven't, as he points out, reached that stage. And there I put a little proviso because he gave this answer before the rejection of Roe versus Wade, for example, mm-hmm. which just happened this year. And there, the majority opinion cited religion and tradition. Religion, history and tradition are exactly what cannot be invoked because it is a revel- The First Amendment was a revolution in government, never in human history, in all of human history had there been a secular government. Every state, every king, every theocracy, every dictatorship had had some kind of religious justification or foundation. America was the first purely secular government in its founding, uh, sort of scientifically created, the first scientifically created nation in history. So. If it does transcend, the, if it crosses over the line, as I say, and if we begin to see purely religious justifications being inserted into Supreme Court opinions or into the justification for laws that Congress passed, well, now we have crossed a line uh, and important of fundamental human liberty has been violated. Then, of course, we're, we have to start asking, when is it time to revolt? When are they restricting my freedom of speech or my freedom to express myself to the point that I really do have to revolt against my government? We are not there, and I still don't think we're there yet. I'm still saying, uh, let's work with however bad the decision is, in my view, on abortion. Let's still work within the system because we are not being, quote, religiously oppressed in America. Not yet, at least.
0: Yeah. Excellent.
2: Yeah. But when I think of the knuckleheads that the, who call themselves Christian nationalists today, mm. I, I want to go up. I mean, I think it's a good point to go up to them and ask, um, what about, OK, so what if the if, if Christian nationalism takes over the country, you know, all, all three parts of the uh, of the government and of uh, federally and uh, and the states? What are you going to do about sectarian violence? What are you going to do about those people who are disagreeing within Christianity? Is that what right. you want? Yeah, I mean, you is this go kind back of a to the of centuries? People?
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you want to go back to inquisitions and burnings and tortures and, um, you know, I just think of Henry VIII, who gave England the Protestant religion. He, the revolution of the at least the initial Protestant revolution, had to go through some undulations after him. But he was so careful not to be so Protestant that he had an extreme Protestant noblewoman, Lady Askew, tortured on the rack because she was too Protestant for him, even though he was taking England in a Protestant direction. That's how crazy it was. Uh, And are we going to go back to that? That's the alternative.
0: You can just picture our Protestant demagogue, our next president saying, well, no, no, no. Lutherans, they're Christians. The um, Episcopalians, we can tolerate them for now. For now. Dot, dot, dot. So we have a poll in the chat. That, said, that asked that question. Oop, I yeah. just scrolled past the top there. Uh, do religious people have a right to influence the government? So the answer to our basic question here, and the vast majority do agree with Doctor Peacock yeah, as I, well as us. I would we, say,
2: yeah, I would say no if it actually makes the Constitution ineffective and it completely uh, destroys the separation of church and state. No. <laughs> I
0: didn't answer no, but I have some sympathy for the whoever the few people are who said no. I, I absolutely understand yeah. that. Yeah.
1: You know, there should be a third alternative because really there's two <laughs> things that are absolutes. One, freedom of religion and, the, and no established religion. The other, freedom of speech, freedom to express and act on your belief, whatever it is. So they're both absolutes. And to understand and reconcile them in a consistent way, you really require the objectivist theory of rights. In fact, the wider objectivist understanding of ethics to see that rights are a unity are unity. You cannot understand any one right, freedom of speech, or freedom of religion, or any of the others, uh, out of context of the, the whole, because they really are connecting to one fundamental right to liberty uh, uh, that has to be seen as a unit, or it can't be understood at all.
0: Right, and we could do a whole show on that, and I'm sure we will. I'm going to jump to question number two, and question number two is, how would you respond to people who say that, well, the worst atrocities in history were committed by atheists like Hitler and Stalin, and that if these men had had some type of religion in their lives, well, they wouldn't have been so evil. How do you respond to that? And Dr. Picoff says, I'll start by saying that Hitler studied Catholic procedure and built it into the Nazi movement, into the hierarchical structure. Now, now, taking a break from the answer here, you know more about that than just about any of us, uh, because you have been leading the Ominous Parallels study group on Sunday mornings.
1: Uh, Adolf Hitler is a native of Austria, as many people know, and uh, Austria is a traditionally Catholic country, as most of the southern German speaking uh, areas are whereas the northern uh, German areas were mostly Lutheran Protestant. Uh, But uh, his background, although he he had a wider background than that, although his background was in Catholicism, obviously by the end of his life, he wasn't a dogmatic Orthodox Catholic by any means. Um, The centrist party in uh, Germany, in Weimar Germany, what opposed him until the very end and then, of course, they kind of caved like everyone else did at the end. Uh, but the Catholic Party w- were mostly the centrists, and they opposed Hitler. But then they started to work with him. At least many Catholic officials started to work with him. And what Peakoff says here is absolutely true. Adolf Hitler very much modeled the hierarchy and structure of the Catholic Church when organizing the Nazi state. There's no question. He was, in effect, the pope. He was the Nazi pope because in effect had turned the ability to make decisions about metaphysical truth and reality all come from this Fuhrer whose judgment and and statements could not be questioned. So in effect, he was like an infallible Pope, and the the ideological structure of Nazism is very much modeled on religious church models, in specific the Catholic Church.
0: It's it's interesting that somebody would have the gumption or the naivete to ask the author of The Ominous Parallels, The End of Freedom in America. (laughs) Well, wasn't Nazism irreligious? Wasn't, Wasn't that an atheist philosophy?
1: No. Well, the thing you have to understand is there was all kinds of encouragement of wacky occultism. There was a whole cult of the Fuhrer, a whole cult of Nazism, a whole cult of German, uh, the, the mystical insight and superiority of the Aryan race and the German Volk. This is solid religion. If anyone could possibly confuse this savage racism this savage nationalism this over all you have to do is listen to a couple of hitler speeches and you know this guy's directly appealing to irrationalism and emotionalism there is nothing quote scientific about nazism the better argument would be i suppose for the communists, for Stalin, because they at least claim to be atheistic. But you know something? (laughs) Ayn Rand may have been the first to observe the connection, but many, many, many people over the last century have observed that the communist party basically supplanted the Russian Orthodox Church. The Russian Orthodox Church had, you know, it it was only a lack of technology (laughs) that, that prevented them from having absolute ideological control under the absolute political control of the czars, and a Russian Orthodox religion uh, was simply replaced by Marxism. They went to the Kremlin. They took over the headquarters of the Russian Orthodox Church to be the headquarters of the new communist party that ran Russia. Uh, Marxism is a form of Neo-mysticism, it attacks reason, uh, it's a post-Hegelian assault on reason as such, and logic as such. If you're a bourgeoisie, we no matter how sound your logic, we dismiss your thinking as bourgeois logic. Only proletariat logic, you see. Whatever the arguments are, that polylogism is an attack on uh, reason as such. And communism is, <laughs> Avoiding atheism does not avoid, in my mind, mysticism or even a kind of religious mysticism. It avoids one error, a monotheistic God. But even there, the communists let the cat slip out of the bag every time. Trotsky, how did he put it? God is the state, the state is God. If these people were not religious fanatics... Uh, who were in fact, and you know, Peikoff gets in a better, thorough, more thorough answer in one of our discussions here about this, I'll shut up. But the idea uh, that communism is not, in effect, just simply taking over the Russian Orthodox Church and its authoritarianism uh, is now widely known not to be true. I mean, it, it, the, it was a religious dictatorship in its own way.
0: Well, I think you've pretty much given Dr. P the remainder of Dr. Peakoff's answer. I'm just going to skip to the last paragraph. Um, but real quick for folks who don't know, what do you mean the ominous parallels study group? If you're not already a member of the Ayn Rand Center UK, once you join, which you will do, you get access to that. You'll you'll be getting the notifications. Sunday mornings, James Valiant leads a discussion of the ominous parallels and the updated version of the book, The Cause of Hitler's Germany. Now and an outst- outstanding discussions, which you'll oh, have well, access
1: thank to. You. Thank you. And you get to really participate and ask your questions and participate. And I think that's a really a wonderful thing. Uh, you know, we are well into the book now, but if you subscribe, you'll have access to all, Rosie's told me you'll have access to all the previous discussions we've had. And in fact, access to all the previous discussions we've had on Leonard Peikoff courses and books. So, uh, the material on induction, objectivism through induction, induction in philosophy and physics, uh, all of that, unity in epistemology and ethics, all of that would be available to you. So there's a, just a well, a library of material there on Peikoff's work that would be available to you if you become a subscriber. Uh, yes. So I can. Only chime in and encourage you, please do consider becoming a subscriber. Subscriptions start with a very low monthly fee. And it's not just uh, the, the peak off discussions we do on Sundays, there's all kinds of other bennies you're getting. So,
0: exactly. In fact, the Ayn Rand Fiction Group is currently doing my favorite Ayn Rand book, The Fountainhead. Arguably, Atlas is the greater book, but my absolute favorite is The Fountainhead on Tuesday afternoons. You get the opportunity to participate in that discussion. And some of the sessions here have been led by Lisa Van Dam and Shoshana Milgram, I believe, has been in on all of them. Outstanding. And as with the Sunday sessions, if you miss one, the recordings are available after the fact. Or if you're just becoming a member today and you think, oh, but I've missed half a dozen of those. They're absolutely worth listening to the archives. And new things have coming. We've done writing sessions with Don Watkins, but new things are coming up that you will have access to as well. Again, EinranCenter.co.uk. And I'm reminded to mention that because also if you put in a super chat in the chat today, that money also supports the organization. And so I've got to say thank you. Thank you to Jeff Bannister, who is in in the chat, in for $3 Canadian. And believe me, that makes a difference. Anything you want to put in the chat will support the organization. But also, if you have any questions for us, any questions for James Valiant, who knows more about Ayn Rand and philosophy than I will ever forget, Ask your questions in a super chat. They will stand out. We will not miss. I'm kind of keeping one eye on the chat, but you know, it's hard with a super chat. It'll stand out. You'll support the ARC UK and support answers to questions like this. I'm going to jump to number three here because you, again, you gave us really the meat and substance of number two there, but this one, this is why we want to visit this. It's kind of easy to say, well, you know, free speech. And if you really understand free speech, that covers it all. But the third question here, why is America more religious than Europe? And what are the political implications of this fact? Now, this is one I think most of us have at least noticed that, yeah, Europe Europe you know, they ask him the question if you're religious and the majority of people in Europe say, well, no, I I don't believe in a personal God. And the majority of people in America, it's the opposite. Most Americans say, yes, I do believe in a God. So why is America more religious than Europe? And what are the political implications of this fact? And I'm going to read the start here. Dr. Peikoff's answer is practically an essay in itself. I'll yeah, post the audios, the direct links after the show, but this one is 16 minutes long. long. We're not gonna be as long as the I, book. <laughs> the want, book. I want Dr. Peekoff's substance here, but I know you, James, will have as much to say about this as he does. He starts his answer like this. This is a question for which I solicited answers from the readers. And then he gives a couple of the readers answers. I'm gonna skip over those for now. We'll come back to that. Coming to my view, I think there are a number of reasons why America is more religious than Europe to begin with. America was founded on a moral code. It was not founded on tribal factions or as the result of some kind of war, nor was there just the discovery of an island and its takeover by some tribe. America was founded deliberately on an idea of rights and how men should treat one another. In other words, an idea of what's right and wrong. And that was restricted pretty much to politics, but nevertheless, the country was born with these ideas strongly embedded in it. Well, only religion offered that. Nobody else offered a strong, positive moral code. Even those of the founding fathers who did not make a big issue of God did make an issue of accepting Christian morality. Jefferson being uh, an arch example. If you read some of Jefferson's writings, you will hardly believe how pro (coughs) self-sacrifice, excuse me, self-sacrifice and service he was. He was. I had to mute for a second there. Yeah. One more paragraph here, one way or another. Though the whole country was founded on the idea of morality and morality was equated with religion. And that is certainly not true with Europe. Europe also equates morality with religion, but they didn't attach that much importance to morality. (laughs) They're much more relativist and subjective. Now, I'll close the quote for there. That sounds a little harsh on Europe, but the explanation is, as he said, Europe was established essentially by history, by circumstance by conquest, by all of these different factors, whereas America was founded on an ideology.
1: You know, one of the points Peikoff makes in several other places is that Europe, there wasn't a major division between intellectuals and the people in Europe in the same way there has been uh, between the intellectuals and ordinary Americans. And I think that is comes to the part of the answer here. Europe bought modern philosophy. Europe bought the contemporary ideas, uh, you know, Kant, Hegel, Marx, straight tap. Uh, And uh, I think that maybe part of the answer here is, too, that Europe had state enforced religions. And so the religion of your country was associated with the government of your country. So people, if you had a beef with the state, you had a beef with your, with your, with your state religion. And this allowed Europeans to also be more skeptical of the main denominational religions. Uh, because if you didn't like the government, you might not like the government's uh, chosen religion and its religious justification for it. Being tied with the state, uh, you know, uh, I think the idea goes back to Alexis de Tocqueville. And I think it's only a partially good answer. <clears throat> but Alexis de Tocqueville said the best thing that ever happened to religion in America was that America has no established religion. They were all free private clubs and voluntary associations. And because of that, they were dissociated from any oppression uh, that the government uh, might come down with. <clears throat> being private clubs, being private morality clubs or philosophy clubs, which is basically what they are in America, not being tied with the state, um, helped the reputation of religion. But I think that that's not really the fundamental answer. As much as I respect Alexis de Tocqueville, it assumes that religion is the only option here. Uh, America in the 1700s was moving in a dramatically secular direction. In the 1800s, that changed. It changed in America dramatically. There were uh, uh, religious revival movements, uh, reawakenings as they were called, uh, millennialists and so forth, the creation of Mormonism, a whole new form of Christianity, homegrown here in the United States, all the way up to the 20th century with Billy Graham and the tent revival meetings. There were all of these religious revival movements in the United States. Well, why? America is more moral in its rooting. It is, and more than that, this an epistemological point Peikoff makes here too. We weren't wedded to this skepticism, this uncertainty that contemporary philosophy had really driven home in Europe, but it never really sunk here in America. We were, were still believers in the truth, or at least there was a truth, and believers in morality. There is a right and wrong, uh, right? And that, those were what gave America, see, it's a false alternative. It's the classic false alternative. You've got dogma on one side, skepticism on the other. Intrinsicism on one side, uh, you know, uh, total subjectivism on the other. And that false alternative you can see here playing out, I think, in the different cultures of Europe and America. Uh, intellectuals, uh, the philosophers never really, they are now, I think, more and more. But for so much of our history, American, the American masses resisted the worst parts of contemporary philosophy and kept to their moral vision. Uh, at least emotionally, and that I think is the answer there. Not so much the no establishment, because if America had been offered instead of Kant and and Hume and Hegel and right those those philosophies, uh, if they had. In other words, if America had a good Aristotelian defense, the egoistic and re- pro-reason defense it had always deserved, instead of Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, he knew Greek, he did his own translation of the New Testament, cut out all the miracles, but he left in the moral teachings because he said Jesus was the greatest moral philosopher who ever lived. So what Peakoff is saying here is exactly correct. He left in the moral teachings cut out the miracles. That was exactly the dichotomy of our Enlightenment founders that needed to be reconciled. They were willing to to embrace reason. They were even willing to embrace egoism in a political sense, the pursuit of happiness, but they didn't have a moral code to go with that, to justify their position. And you can really see that in Jefferson. Thomas Paine's another great example. He was the most popular uh, uh, political writer in the revolutionary period. He got Americans that undecided third to go with the revolution. He all, with his common sense, he also wrote one of the earliest attacks on the New Testament and all the miraculous, you know, uh, mystical nonsense there many of the people behind America were secular in their orientation. That's what conservatives miss. But what they lacked was what religion had always had a monopoly on, morality. And they were stuck with the old views of altruist morality that had been grounded in mysticism.
0: Well, you've covered essentially Dr. Pigoff's opening statement and the second point that he makes. I just want to read a bit from a little further in. He says, I think there's a third factor it's relevant to the American educational system. Yes, uh, which, in my opinion, is worse than the European one. Yeah, such experience as I've had, for instance, in Canada, and such study as I've had in connection with the French and the English, their educational system is far superior, even with their deterioration in general, to that of America. America was taken over by pragmatism almost 100 years ago, in a way that no European country ever was. The essence of pragmatism is to say, don't think, forget about the conceptual level. Fool around, play, have your little concrete-bound experiments, and submit to the group. Let's get rid of cognition. There is a contempt for knowledge in American schools that I have never seen in European schools. This is partly a good sign because Americans want practicality. And the education they're offered is impractical. So, th- so this we, we fall into pragmatism, whereas the Europeans have re- always regarded themselves as pragmatic. Uh, he goes on, but partly it's a bad sign because having abandoned the idea of thought or ideas, they can't do anything to get practicality or to deal with the world. And that plays right into the hands of the authoritarians. I'm afraid that the way it's been set up with no objective morality or objective method of reaching truth offered and with no education enabling the younger generation to think, it's pretty clear why Americans, because they're better, are worse in this issue. If you want to know how bad I think Americans are on this issue, consider a poll that was, t- ah, this is something here, consider a poll that was taken by many different categories of people and the question was, who would you want your daughter to marry. <laughs> and you're given choices. And you're given the choices. Op- here. <laughs> the options start with Jewish and Christian and then down through various groups, down to Muslims, and then through homosexuals. And then the last one on the list, the one that Americans would, would least want their daughter to marry was atheist. Uh
1: huh. Atheism think about regarded that. Think, as
0: total corruption. Think about
1: that. Any religion would do any religion would do better than atheism in the American people's mind. In fact, uh, lifestyles that most Christian Americans might not even agree with, like homosexuality, that, that would, that's not gonna be as bad as atheism. Atheism is the bottom of the you know, barrel. <laughs> now think I, about that.
2: Yeah, They're yeah, almost, I,
1: almost assuming that we're corrupt, that we must necessarily be vicious or corrupt people simply because we're atheists.
2: But I, I gotta jump in at this point and just kind of have a reality check and just ask the question, um, do I, and I understand that on a form like that, Christians will say that they will say, oh yeah, athe- everything that is opposite of who I am, that means like a devil worshiping atheist who is out, <laughs> you know, kill, killing small animals. And, you know, just imagine what they think. Um, once they find an atheist and they actually get to know them, this is what I often, this is what I found. I'm not shy about, you know, being an atheist. I mean, sometimes even at work. And uh, some people will look at me and say, oh, but you're you're a nice person,
1: <laughs> but you're a nice person. You see, it's that. But <laughs> that how, one of how the good how ones paradoxical and surprising, Amy, that you're such a yes. wonderful, nice, benevolent, moral person. <laughs> because you have no moral base. How can that be? <laughs>
2: oh. <laughs> I You know, let them know that, you know, but I, I am, I don't follow the, the same morality that they don't, that they follow, but, but, but that doesn't mean that I'm a Satanist or, or some sort of a sadistic person. Um, And I, and I talk about rational, rational egoism and um, that, you know, and it's so, you know, but yeah, it's just funny that way. If it, when right. it's you down know, on paper, they will say yeah. atheists are the worst. Let me but just but when say, they meet them in real, real life, it's different. yeah.
1: No, no. In fact, no. Reality is the exact opposite, of course, and that's our best friend here. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. When I was a pro- I was a public prosecutor and prosecuted crime for 18 years. The fact is that every religious group has a higher crime rate than atheists. Of all the religious groups, I mean all the religious groups out there atheists have the lowest likelihood of committing crimes and you get more serious the more the less likely atheists are to commit crimes so the most law abiding peaceful people in our (laughs) society are people who are not religious and it's funny too, because when you go down the thing you're not associated with a major religion, agnostic, all the way down to hardcore atheist, it actually goes up. The, the, the crime rate goes down, 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 down. So the less religious you are, in, yeah. to the proportion you, you are less religious, is the more proportionate you are likely to be peaceful and law abiding.
0: Now right. think about even, that. So the even whole the polls prejudices tell you.
1: Yeah, the whole prejudices are exactly the wrong. But you know who gives it credence? Are many of our atheist friends. Like sure. Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens. See, they don't have an objective yeah. morality. To them, it's all just subjective feelings and your feelings versus mine. They bought into the Hume, you can't get an yeah. objective is from an uh, ought from an is. So they say they are the ones who really make that religious assumption possible.
2: Yeah. yeah. So I'll
1: say both things there.
0: <laughs> yeah, at some point we'll talk to you about, well, but what is their base for morality then? Well, it's altruism. And why is that? Well, they'd never say they take it on faith, right. but read right. their and explanations so, and tell and me that it's notice, more than faith.
1: And you'll notice our so-called atheist dictators, who were supposed to be awful, uh, are, you know, base their whole morality, whatever their religious beliefs were, their whole morality is basically a secularized version, at best, of Christian ethics and altruism. You're yes. sort of just absorbing Christian ethics without any critical thought without any, without questioning its basis or its particulars. They just absorb Christian ethics and impose it socially.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you what's not self-sacrifice is Jeff Bannister is in the super chat again, very generously this time. And we were talking earlier about the organization, ARC UK, and he says, that's awesome. Thanks, Rossi and production crew for making that available. Those, again, those fountainhead recordings outstanding. He says, I have caught up on some chapters after hours and love it. Outstanding. Thank you for that, Jeff. You, Jeff. Now I have to read again. I'm going to jump to the end of the question here because I think we need a little bit of, of optimism, a little bit of, of positivity. <laughs> and Chris, of course, read as you know where to look. He says, I want to say, talking about political implications, I do think the future is open. I think it's still possible to have a rational philosophy take over. And I've been strictly I love this. And I've been strictly instructed by other objectivists never <laughs> to spread my pessimism to people of the younger generation.
2: Oops, I think that's out of the bag. <laughs> Sorry.
0: It doesn't sound quite as convincing when he says it like that. No comment. I just want to say, though, that in I'm my opinion... slightly to... quiet here. <laughs> he does say, in my opinion, today's stress on religion and sacrifice and authority and the like, along with the rise of the green anti-industrial anti-wealth movement is pointing in the direction of religious totalitarianism. Now, I don't think that means we're going to become totalitarian and Europe isn't. I think insofar as a religious dictatorship is concerned, we are a step closer to it than Europe is. And that's because of the good qualities of this country. Nevertheless, because of this philosophic error, we are a step closer to a disastrous end. But America is the world standard. And therefore, well, when it happens in America, if it happens, it's not going to be very long at all before it happens in Europe. I don't think any longer that it's going to be a so-called secular tyranny, such as communism, which allegedly got rid of God because the failure of that type of tyranny is just too obvious. It's gonna be in both places, I believe, a religious totalitarianism. In Europe, I could see that coming about in many different ways. One of the Christians in this country or whatever the religion is, it doesn't have to be Christian, could launch crusades against Europe who would quickly fold if America had religious passion and weapons, or it could very well be Muslims taking over Europe as they're now rapidly rising to do in one European country after the other, Who knows what possibility. So I think the political implications are only that America is in a very bad state. And if America is the hope for the world, it's a bad, bad thing that it's so religious. For further details on why I think religion is so much greater a threat than socialism, I refer you to my book, The Dim Hypothesis, which I should hold up as a prop, but I don't have it with an arm's length.
1: We should have a link, Dad. definitely, to, to the dim hypothesis in this one, and probably a link to Dr. Peakoff's article, uh, Philosophy and Psychology and History, because they very much relate to what he's talking about here, and I think he even cites it in his answers here. Uh, the dim hypothesis is a brilliant, brilliant, I mean, the climax of Dr. Peakoff's work, and I happen to agree with him. Um, in the long run, nihilism, relativism, skepticism, cynicism, moral cynicism, all of that really cannot motivate at the end of the day. It cannot inspire, it cannot give certainty, it cannot give confidence. It will not motivate people with passion, like only a, a confident moral view can. And so long as people are, are sec- like I say, our secular philosophers are under the bizarre uh, uh, dogma of their own that you can't derive uh, objectively uh, an ought from an is, there's no real answer. So the only way people are going to have uh, morality at all or confidence in their judgment at all is by turning to, again, this false alternative, this false dichotomy of dogmatism. At least the religion, now it's as awful and as unreal and as horrific as even though it's, as we just said, the model of totalitarianism is really the authoritarianism of the church. It very much is. With all that being said, at least re- re- the religious believe in some kind of morality. At least they believe in some kind of truth. Unlike our, the, our relativist uh, foes, I mean, they would, the, our nihilist foes, they would smash and destroy civilization if given half a chance. And finally, I would say that Dr. Peikoff makes a dramatically ominous point in the uh, DIM hypothesis. And his answer here, we see the new religion of environmentalism, the religion of environmentalism on the rise in a very rank mystical way. Now, it doesn't have the developed accoutrements, say, of 2000 years of Christianity or Judaism, which they have behind them, this intellectual luster. And so I can only believe that he's right. Probably in America, a form of virulent Christianity allied with this neo-green movement is the thing we have most to fear when that kind of, see, what did Hitler do? Obviously we're not comparing anyone in America to Hitler today, but what Hitler did was in effect, look at the left and look at the right in his own country at the time and said, you're both right. I'm gonna give you worker socialism and I'm gonna give you conservative nationalism. And I fear that that same kind of combination, perhaps on a different scale uh, could occur appealing both to the moral values of rank-and-file American middle class and this environmentalist religion that could snooker in enough of our leftist uh, uh, foes to create a consensus that would create sort of a new kind of theocracy in America. Um, People can't live in nihilism and relativism for very long. They're going to need some guidance. And if they don't have, you know, we do have a hope. Objectivism. Objectivism. I mean, 60 years ago, Ayn Rand had started to give the world objectivism, and I know it has only been a half century or so since Atlas Shrugged. But nonetheless, nonetheless, we have an alternative. And if there is any hope, that's it. And it's a powerful hope because we got reality on our side.
0: You mentioned the um, failure of ethical theories by people like Sam Harris and Steven Pinker. It, it frustrates me no end to no. read, you know, Sam Harris and the moral landscape is claim to uh, rational grounding of morality. And yet somehow he comes up with altruism. All of his explanations come out purely like faith to me. And I just want to grab him by the shoulders. Don't you realize that the virtue of selfishness and the objectivist ethics has already been written and right. had the right answers yeah. instead. And, At the same time, I want to talk to our friends who are a few of whom are still determined that religion will save us from the left. And then we can discard the religion later. And that gets into question Uh, number four, because we kind of already touched on this. Well, actually, we touched on it quite a bit. Is religion more dangerous in America than socialism or collectivism? Now, now. (laughs) You know, how many, how many times have we heard this? This question was asked in 2009, but I've been hearing it for the last however many years. Religion makes only minimal intrusions into my life and doesn't forcibly play any role, unlike today's growing statism. How many times have we heard that? Why are you people so hard on religion? You know, they mostly leave me alone, but the left. <sighs> So let me give you the first paragraph of Dr. Pigo's answer here. I think that socialism, if we take that to mean the advocacy on secular grounds of the public ownership of the means of production, such as outright communism in the guise of pretend titles to private property under Nazism, without reference to the supernatural, has no chance whatsoever of being a dominant force or of taking over a country in the West. I think the days when you could appeal to economics or biology or some science and say, well, that's what justifies my desire for totalitarianism have gone. Socialist regimes proved to be a disastrous failure, on top of which science is pretty much lost or is rapidly losing its social prestige because of the bizarre things scientists are claiming to find in the universe. Now, there's a couple more paragraphs here, but our producer has put up a poll. And the the whole question is, what's a greater danger in your life, your life, socialism or religion? You
2: you know, I got to say, oh. Oh, I got to say that uh every time I see my my friends and family who are not objectivists and who are religious, I I it, it breaks my it breaks my heart to see them not be able to think outside of their moral context and actually improve their lives, better their lives, make themselves happier and um and it's 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 like they are surviving with a collar on them that basically leashes them and yeah. keeps them from actually thinking about these things and and discovering rational egoism and or discovering blinders. objectivity blinders yeah. yeah it 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 kills me and and i think what sweet wonderful people but they're so held back and they're so confused and 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 then they're carrying it on to their children you know so it is It is. If your
1: socialism is economic, and uh, getting back to Marx being, and our socialists not being uh, really uh, secular, uh, uh, Marx was not a scientific economist or a scientific historian. His economics was anti-scientific, his history was anti-scientific, but nonetheless, an economic argument by uh, the founder of a system socialism and communism which has been so disastrous as a failure that's the big one but look at all the different ways in which science has recently discredited itself government science in particular catastrophic climate change or the insane changing rules about COVID and the lockdowns and so forth it's this, this the government science garbage has really diminished the high prestige science once had in the Western world. And that is a very, very important factor here. Uh, more than that, it, take or just take even uh, Hitler's you know, weirdness. If you think those racist theories of his were science, you've you got another thing coming too. No, uh, the, the, the sort of secular justifications for collectivism have failed. They really haven't captured anyone's imagination. It is, I'm afraid, morality and the morality people are comfortable with that is probably going to be the source of any new authoritarian or totalitarianism around the corner. And as we've said, and I will say once more, religion is the model for all authoritarianism. First, epistemologically turning your judgment over to the judgment of some authority, whether it's an ancient text or some religious guru, whatever it is, religion is turning your mind over to authority. It is turning your values over to authority. It is turning your life over to authority, saying, tell me what to do, because if this is true morality that will please God or get me into heaven or something, then that's the morality that may as well be imposed by law. That has been the, the traditional Christian model in European history. That is the entire framework for dictatorship. I will go so far as to say that 20th century totalitarianism could never have existed, but for the authoritarianism, which uh, Christianity had modeled for more than a thousand years before that.
2: Yeah. Yes. Well
0: said. Our poll right now, we have religion at 67%, which is heartening because again, I know that feeling of well, socialism is what's destroying the world, but think about the last couple of big pieces of legislation or Supreme court decisions that have impacted our lives. Obviously, the the demise of Roe versus Wade, well, that was certainly not socialism. That was obviously faith-based. But even this this clean energy bill that was just passed, well, that's not socialism. Sure it is, it's the left. No, but it's not socialism, it's authoritarianism. There's nothing socialist about taking our money and forcing us to do things to take care of Mother Earth. There's nothing- well, it's not even collectivist, that's pure authoritarianism. Yeah. Right. It's
1: authoritarianism rooted in mysticism. Yes. This green, this religion of the green, right? And yeah, that's exactly what it is. And as I say, can you imagine the terrifying force that could I mean I see a lot of even conservative Christians being soft on environmentalism? Oh, it's God's nature, and we have to be stewards of God's nature, right? And then you hear these religious aspects coming even from leftist greenies. And so so at one point, are they going to merge? Is there going to be some new third party that says, well, we're both green and we're grounded in faith. That would be the nightmare of nightmares because that could develop a large enough group, a consensus in America that could take us down, straight down a completely authoritarian or totalitarian path.
0: Yes. Yes. Now, Dr. Picoff wraps up, encouraging people to read the Dim Hypothesis. I will say the same thing. And it's interesting because there's a few ideas in there that you, you almost wish it could be updated every five years to continue to follow yes. history. But the right. overall theme is is just bulletproof. The insights are outstanding. And I, it, I don't even mean to get into left versus right because, you know, a pox on both of their houses. But I absolutely agree with Dr. Peacock. There have been that, uh, great
1: historians and great historiographers, people trying to understand uh, what makes history most of these theories have been nonsense Ayn Rand in for the new intellectual gave us the fundamentals the clue for understanding the real engine of human history ideas and what Dr. Peakoff does in the dim hypothesis is fully develop that idea that Ayn Rand had suggested in for the new intellectual and demonstrates it f- across culture politics you name it uh, and has in my view, the most sophisticated and important theory of historiography ever put forward by a philosopher in history. I am that strong an advocate of the Dim Hypothesis.
0: You know, I, I
1: my own book, Creating Christ, um, you know, my interest in history and the history of ideas is one of the things that connected me very much with uh, Leonard Peikoff and something we talked about for many years before either of our books, Dim or Created Christ came out. In Created Christ, all I'm doing is elaborating on one narrow point of history. Now, it's the beginnings of Christianity, so it's maybe an important point, but it shows a connection between altruism, mysticism, and power lust a point that Ayn Rand made through Ellsworth Tuohy. I did not set out to do that, but in describing the origins of Christianity, it was astonishing how I ended up doing that. Um, I think that as objectivists, we have a whole open field, a vista of history to re-examine and give new insight and new understanding into whether it's Christianity or the industrial revolution, the Renaissance, you name it. The the theory that Peikoff develops in the Dim Hypothesis could have sweeping, I don't mean to go on like this, could have sweeping and revolutionary impact on the entire field of history. Uh, And believe me, this is coming from a historian. Uh, That is how high a view I have of this
0: book. Yeah, uh, Dr. Peikoff writes, I believe the medievals understood, the medievals. It's it's amazing to just take a moment. It's amazing to think in 2022, how recent secularism really is and how, you know, the disasters that we had in the 20th century, in the 1900s were, well, here, let me read his answer before I get into that. I believe the Medievals understood much better than the moderns on what basis to build a totalitarian society that would last and not collapse in less than a century. They did it. The people in the rising religious movement today know that full well. They're the ones who have millions upon millions of followers and a real insight into the fact that not economics, but philosophy and culture are the crucial factor. You'll have to read my book, The Dim Hypothesis, because the entire thesis is that religion was the root of all the evil from the beginning, That it has ruled in disguised forms and it still is. That now the disguise has to be stripped off. And if there is to be totalitarianism, this is the only one, this is the only basis of totalitarianism left. Uh, So called atheistic totalitarianism was fully discredited in the last century. And yet, somehow, here we are.
1: No one says it better than Leonard does. Dr. Peikoff has has the way of putting it so powerfully. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Boy, I could have avoided half of what I said if you just got to that. <laughs> he summarized it so brilliantly. Uh Yeah.
0: So, again, a false alternative fight the left, fight the right. It's more a question of what specific actions do we take at specific times. You know, there there was controversy over Leonard Peikoff's statements about the last election. The theme remains the same. The long-term danger has not changed. This remains a war of ideas and not of personalities.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And you can, in any one political uh, contest, I think reasonable minds might be able to disagree. We are so far down a corrupt path where both parties are so fully corrupt and and if left to their own devices would lead us down in uh, terribly destructive uh, ways, that it's so often a a terrible judgment call we make about the long-term and the Mm short-term. But uh, Ayn Rand made such a call, Uh, for example, with Reagan. Uh, At one time in the 1960s, she actually had favorable things to say about Governor Reagan when he was governor of California. But after his alliance with the moral majority, Ayn Rand said no. And how prescient was that? She saw the direction it was going in. And now today, uh, Trump's appointments are now using religion to get rid of Roe versus Wade. Uh, We're now seeing the culmination, the practical effect of Ayn Rand's prescient warning. And I, I am afraid that I have to think that Dr. Peacock's warning was equally prescient, unless we, the advocates of reason and individualism, stand up and provide an alternative to religious ethics. Uh, That is the key to the future. And we have it. We now have an objective morality. Thanks to Ayn Rand. Thanks to Ayn Rand's students like Leonard Peikoff and Harry Binswanger and uh, Greg Salmieri. These people have now opened up and Tara Smith with her books on ethics, have opened up now a new objective secular ethics that's being defended by serious minds. I can only think that that is the hope for humanity and what a powerful hope it is we really have found now the grounds on which to fight religion not just the logic of god's existence because that's never where the battle was
2: right the
1: battle was over morality the battle was over who had who was confident in their knowledge and until those issues the epistemological and ethical issues get squared away there can be no hope we're doomed for another cycle of dark ages and revivals and dark ages and revivals until The ideas of Ayn Rand and Leonard Peikoff become mainstream in some culture of this world.
2: Well, I got to say, loud and proud, loud and proud. We got to give out what we consider to be rational morality. And, uh, you know, whether it's just a, a quick conversation with a friend about what honesty actually is. Right. And, uh, you know, and differentiating um, Ayn Rand's ideas with um, the conventional altruistic morality, saying there's something here. There's so much here that people are missing out on, that people need to grasp, that's going to benefit everybody. Um, Yeah, so loud and proud. (laughs)
0: loud and proud. Well, we will keep up the work of spreading these ideas. Our producer mentioned in the chat, there are actually 15 discussion and book clubs in total associated with the Ayn Rand Center UK. Again, special projects, you need to be a part of that. But yeah, as Amy says, loud and proud, live these ideas. When people ask you, why are you so happy? Why are you on this success track? Why do you have this benevolence of spirit? Be prepared to say, well, it's because of these ideas that I hold, because of my understanding of the nature of the world. I, it was fun when I would work both in IT and back in the restaurant days, I would get that question. People would say, why are you so happy all the time? And they didn't literally mean happy. They, they just saw there was something different about this guy. And I think that's, that's the first and foremost is to take these ideas, put them into practice, put yourself on whatever your own personal success track looks like because we're not going to we're not going to save the world by supporting you know Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any particular individual. Yeah. It's going to be it it is a war of ideas.
1: That's where the battle is. It's not and, in the street, and, it's not in politics, it's in
0: ideas. I think our mission is keeping it real. We are not done with this book yet. Now we've covered oh. religion over the course of 5 weeks. I think we've pretty much We got a handle on or rather Leonard Peikoff gave us a handle on, you know, I
1: I don't want to give anyone, you know, to scare all of our, you know, any of our, you know, more timid or uh, shy uh, listeners away. But I think we will have to return to sex at some point.
2: Oh, Uh,
0: more sex.
1: I I don't want to titillate anyone or to get anyone thinking that we might return to the top of that. Because there are all kinds of questions about sex that uh, we may just have to get back to soon. So but I'm sure that doesn't interest anyone out there. So you probably just want to skip all this discussion about sex because no one's interested in that.
0: No, it's Uh, a hard topic. And I think people want more. So yes, people always want more sex. (laughs) All right. Well, I think we needed an irreverent ending to this talk about the irrational reverence. And James, thank you so much. Another outstanding discussion. Yeah, we will do this you. next Friday. We will return to the book. We are not done with this one yet. Bye no As means. you say, there's there's more sex to be had and there's much more <laughs> as well in the book. James, thank you so much for this week's thank discussion. Thank you.
1: I love you guys.
2: Love you too, James.
0: And I and love thank you everybody for listening. Like subscribers. Take care.